Well, if you have a Bible along, uh, open it to the book of Psalms, chapter 8 this morning. When I was growing up in the late 1960s, um, it was, our nation was absolutely in upheaval. I'm, it was a time of massive social change in our country. Uh, we were in the midst of an extremely unpopular war in Vietnam, uh, which would eventually take the lives of nearly 60,000 of our servicemen. Uh, there were demonstrations, protests that led to riots uh, in the streets and on campuses, sometimes led to the death of uh, college students when National Guard troops were brought in. Uh, the South was in flames uh, because of a hundred years of uh, failure to recognize that they'd lost the Civil War and to treat um, African Americans like they were actually freed. Um, there were race riots in the streets. There was a whole different attitude uh, taking place when it came to uh, authority. And that was true whether you were talking about uh, the political f uh, figures in authority or the police or religious leaders or education leaders and especially parents. The authority of parents was pretty much going out the window. A lot of massive change took place and really in a matter of about uh, six, seven years. Um, but you know what, what it was that kind of was the seedbed that carried that change along um, and fostered it? It was music. Um, Groups like um, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Joan Baez, The Beatles, uh, Bob Dylan, Pete Seeger. Uh, a lot of their music was generic kind of love, commercialized love music. But in the midst of their um, playlists, they often included some social consciousness songs. You know, I've always thought if you want to start a revolution, hire good writers. If you want to sustain a revolution, hire good musicians who can put the writer's words to music. And um, that, that, the music was really the heartbeat, even though, even though the lyrics many times weren't about the social change that was occurring, it, it brought to mind a certain way of thinking. Uh, my wife and I, when we were celebrating our anniversary the other week, we were in a hotel room playing games, and I uh, pulled up on my phone a playlist of songs that were popular when we were dating. And, um, you know, you don't even know half the words to the songs, but they evoke certain memories. Um, there, there are memories connected with this. And the same way it was during the 60s. There were certain memories that, the memories that were being established and then quickly becoming things that you hark back to. 1971, you look back to 1968, and, and the, this kind of music uh, produced a thinking about this and about that and and God knows the power that music has, that it has the ability to comfort and console us, it has the ability to disturb us, it has the ability to warn us, has the ability to teach us. And so he devoted the largest book in the Bible to music, the book of Psalms, 150 chapters. Psalm, the P-S-A-L-M, simply means song. So God has this songbook for us, this hymnal in the Bible with uh, a, a lot of... Um, very evocative lyrics. Um, King David wrote a lot of the Psalms, but others did as well. But they speak about 
uh, a man who, yes, is a worshiper, but also a man who is distraught and going through a lot of difficult times. If, you're gonna, if you go through hard times in your life, uh, the Psalms is a great place to go to and, and read and kind of pray through the things that David and the others are, are praying through and God saying, God, where are you in the midst of it? If you go through times where you wonder if God has abandoned you, you have a lot of company. And one of them was a Bible writer. You can read David's uh, cryings out to God. But he also reoriented us and brings us back to where we need to um, put our faith and where we need to put our confidence. And so as we're doing this series on Christmas, I thought we're going to do one on Christmas music. And by the way, if you want to make a lot of money and be set for life, how many of you like to do that? All right, if, you're, if you have some ability with a pen, you can do that. If you could write a Christmas song or just get it, um, put the words down and get somebody else who's competent with music to put it to a tune, and other people would begin to cover that, write, uh, begin to record that, you could be set for life, literally. Uh, a lot of people buy a lot of Christmas music. Um, they say that musicians... Even if you're kind of mediocre musician, obscure musician, you can make a lot of money over the holidays um, just doing um, Christmas music, your own style, because a lot of people will buy it. Um, one of the th reasons that musicians can make money uh, like that is because most of the music is uh, in the public domain, so they don't have to split their proceeds with writers, so they just make the music and keep all the cash for themselves. So it's a great time of year to make money on music. Elvis Presley is dead and still making money on Christmas music. He's the best-selling Christmas artist that ever existed. Ten, over 10 million Christmas albums. Kenny G's runner-up with 7.5 million. But uh, just so you think about that, Christmas, you never would have thought that if you write a Christmas song, you can make a lot of money. But there you go. There's your new future for some of you. So the series is called Shadows in the Traditions, and uh, what we're doing is looking at some of our Christmas traditions, pulling back the curtain and seeing the sh what's in the shadows about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I was planning to today speak about one or two of the Psalms that are messianic, that point to the Messiah. Did you know that there are almost six dozen of the Psalms that point to um, Jesus Christ? I was led a different direction, and we're gonna, the psalm we're going to read in cha uh, Psalm chapter 8 is really about you and me. Um, psalm chapter 8, and then we're going to leapfrog ahead to the New Testament about a thousand years later, and this psalm is going to resurface there, and we're going to see how the writer uses it and what he has to say. So Psalm chapter 8, and we're going to start reading in verse 3 right after we pray and ask God for his help. Uh, Father, thank you for the gift of music that you have given to us. My goodness, what an amazing thing. I, I, I suspect that all of us here, whether we can sing um, well or can't carry a tune in a bucket of water, love music. It just does something for us. It's For some, it's the background of all of life. We have our earbuds in all of the time and we're listening, 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 whether we're mowing the yard or working on the computer or at work. Um, for many of us, uh, it's background music when we're in the car, 
um, maybe at home while we're getting dinner ready. Um, we have our favorite artists and, and the songs might be attractive to us because of the music or the words or both. And we know how it makes us feel and we know what it does for us and what it can do to us. And you knew all of that. And you gave us this incredible, incredible um, media way to communicate with one another. And you knew how to use it to inspire us and challenge us as well and to be um, a platform for our worship and our praise as well as our laments and our complaints and our concerns. So we're going to say, first of all, thanks for the gift. And then as you have um, kind of guided us through the Psalms, you've shown us that you're not afraid of us using the gift to to ask hard questions of you and to say things that maybe we'd be afraid to say in your presence. And so as we think about this particular time of the year and the songs that we love to sing, the songs that we love to hear, um, I pray that you would help us this morning to um, kind of think about the, um, not just the tunes that we hear, but what are we hearing in the tunes and whether or not that's um, a advancing your cause among us or simply leaving us with a a satisfying sensation for the moment and mostly about um, what the songs are meant to convey with regard to our savior whose birth we celebrate at christmas to kind of evaluate what is is it that really matters and what is it really is important that's being conveyed in the music we're grateful for the holidays and all of the things that go with it, but we want to comb down to the root and find the significance and meaning in our traditions. We pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning for your name's sake. Amen. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work... Oh, by the way, just to alert you, I'm in the ESV this morning. Um, there's some quarrels I have with the New Living Translation that I new, normally use uh, in this passage, and that's compounded when we get to the book of Hebrews. So um, I'm doing the English Standard Version. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man or humanity that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, he's still talking about humanity, it's just a poetic elaboration. And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion or authority over the works of your hands. You have put all these things under his feet. All sheep, oxen, also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And we'll stop right there. Now, this is an incredible portrayal in David's mind of the God's regard for humanity. And I can just imagine that maybe he penned this one night while he was sitting on the balcony of his palace looking up into the dark night sky and and talking with his Lord. And he's looking around the stars and the moon and he can't believe it that the God who flung all of this into space is the God who cares about him. Or maybe he was remembering back to the nights, many nights that he took care of his father's herd, uh, 
sheep and goats out in the, out in the pastures and the hillsides, dark nights again. And David was um, smitten with wonder at this God who'd made the stars and the moon. And yet here we are today, we have such a greater comprehension and grasp on the true magnificence of God's work in the cosmos, of the galaxies and the vast reaches of space that scientists have just begun to uh, invade with their massive telescopes and so forth. And, and the question still remains, God, what, what, it, what drives you when you are so vast, grand, majestic, and amazing to have anything to do with us? And here's the first thing I want you to remember this morning. God has made you something. Something amazing and glorious. Now, we talk here around, uh, around Keystone a lot about sin. We, we, we mention it a lot, and probably some of you think too much. I finished reading Mark Dever's book this week uh, called What is a Healthy Church? And he, in the last chapter, he observed, you know, some of our people at our church think we talk about sin way too much. And we do that too, but we do it on purpose. It's not an accident because... We have one message, as Brandon reminds us again and again and again. Here at Keystone, we have one message, and that is the gospel message. And if you, if you have no um, grasp of the normity and the um, consequences of your sin, you have no interest in a gospel. Because remember what Jesus said? He said, I have not come to, I've not come to those who don't think they need anything who think that they're good enough people, I've only come to sinners who know they need to repent. So the good news is only for sinners. So we talk about sin a lot here. The people who don't welcome the gospel into their lives have never grasped the enormity of their sin problem. But that's not the whole story, is it? This is a piece of the story as well. God has made you something, and as David looks up into the heavens, he's scratching his head over God's seemingly irrational interest in him, in us. He can't quite, can't quite get over it that God cares for us, verse 4. In fact, he goes on to say, not only do, do, do you care for us, but you've made us of such high stature that we're almost Almost at the angel's status. Wouldn't you love to be an angel? Some of your husbands just whisper to you, you are, honey. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be an angel? You could get from point A to point B without have, having to book a flight. You could, you could move around without being seen. You could routinely enter into the presence of God and get your marching orders for the day or the month or the year. I, you would never get a cold or an infection of any kind. You would never die, and you would never sin. These are the good angels. And David says, you're just that close. So close. In fact, we have been crowned with glory and honor. There's a prestige that belongs to you because you are a member of the human family. And solely for that reason crowned with glory and honor, and everything has been put under your feet. You've been given dominion. You've been given authority over everything else that God created. 
of a maple tree in my backyard that was just gorgeous this fall. Red and a little bit of yellow in there. It's beautiful. I have dominion over that tree, not the other way around. There are wild cats that roam in my backyard. I have dominion over those cats. Rabbits, the squirrels that are out there. Why is that? You have dominion, authority. Some of you are dairy farmers. You have authority over those cows. And it's not just because you purchased them. It's because within you exclusively resides the Imago Dei, the image of God. And so that beautiful bald eagle that I photographed about a week and a half ago, just about a half a mile north of the church here, majestic a creature as it is, does not bear the image of God. That bass that you pulled out of the river last summer, not bear the image of God. That cow that you milk, not bear the image of God. There is nothing that God created that bears the image of God but you and me. We're going to talk more about that in January, February next year, starting on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday and how that, that stamp of God on us makes us different. Now, just to go off on a little rabbit trail for a minute, this is one of the things that is missing in the current public, global public discussion about the environment. There's all kinds of debate about whether or not we should have a carbon tax and, and what we should do with uh, prospects of global warming and of course, that's an advanced discussion beyond the simple discussions that we used to have about polluted lakes and rivers and seas and so forth. Back in the 1960s and 70s, the Great Lakes were a mess, just a mess. And yet three years ago, when my wife and I did a Great Lakes tour for 12 days and looked at all of them, it was, it was, they were literally stunning. I remember standing about 200 feet up in the air in Mackinac Island looking down through a rocky arch into Lake Huron. And it didn't matter whether you're looking right at the edge of the shore where the water was about a foot deep or further in where it was about 10 feet deep. You could see clear to the bottom. You could see the pebbles on the bottom. It was so clear. It's an amazing success story what we've been able to do with the Great Lakes. Here's the problem as we wrestle with what should we do and shouldn't we do. We need to keep that discussion about the environment based on this. God made the environment for us. And so it's not for the Holstein in your barnyard. The Holstein is there for you. And so you milk it and you sell the milk, if you can these days. And then when the age of the cow is such that it's no longer giving milk, you make it into a wonderful collection of ribeyes. Because the cow is here for you. God has given you and me dominion over those animals, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And so environmentalism is important that for those of us who know the God who made the environment, that we bring this into the discussion that the environment serves our purposes. And therefore, we want to keep the air clean. We want to keep the waters clean for human beings who use them. We need to be a good steward of this, but not just for the environment. Some of the extreme environmentalists have this discussion that they say would, the environment would be far better off 
if we would simply cease to exist as human beings. Wait a minute. Who's this environment for? Is it for the rabbits? No. Is it for the bald eagles? No. Is it for the trout? No. It is for the people who bear, exclusively bear, the image of God. And so we have been given dominion and authority over this. Now, it's interesting when, it, when David says, what is man that you uh, are mindful of him, that you care for him? When you read that, do you ask yourself, wait a minute, God. I have this wrong in my life and this wrong in my life and this wrong in my life and this and this and this. Are you really caring for me like you should care for me? In fact, some of us have become far better at noticing our, what we've been deprived of than what we have been given. It was interesting. Yesterday, uh, I was watching the Army-Navy football game, and hoo A couple of you know what happened. Really important, significant thing happened yesterday when Army trounced Navy. But it was interesting, during the ball game, a commercial came on. And it showed a veteran uh, from the waist up. And he was talking about how fortunate he was. And he had come back from Afghanistan and said, I was one of the lucky ones. I came back. And then the camera zoomed out and you saw he had no legs. He's going down the stairs with just stumps right here. And I was actually finishing up this message and I thought, Oh, my goodness. I can't remember the last time I was reminded that I have legs and they are a gift from God. I'm a far better, um, I'm far better in noticing what God doesn't give me than what he does. Are you like that? What is man that you should care for him you know when we come to this holiday season and we play a lot of Christmas music in our house um, I think Betty has about 80 Christmas songs on her Christmas playlist and and uh, it's interesting some of the songs I love the best Christmas songs I love the best are totally empty when it comes to the lyrics I mean you got nothing to stand on And we come into the season looking forward to the, I I call them the happy times of Christmas. We're looking forward to the gift exchange where we get to give gifts to people and and watch them open up and see the the joy in their faces, especially the children. And and we love getting gifts and opening opening them up and seeing what people got us. And that's so exciting. And we get together with family maybe on, on Christmas Day. And that's so exciting. And we'll play games together and talk together and just have warm fun together. It's so wonderful. The anticipation is there. But based on what? One of my favorites is Carol of the Bells. Anybody else like Carol of the Bells? Beside Mindy? Did you ever listen to the lyrics? Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say, throw cares away. Christmas is here, bringing good cheer. Too young and old, meek and the bold. Nothing in that. I mean, seriously. Throw cares away. Based on what? 
What's going to make you throw your cares away? Christmas is here bringing good cheer. How? By getting gifts? What if you don't get what you want? What if you don't have money to buy anybody gifts and nobody's, you have no relationships and nobody's going to buy you gifts? What if your family is so dysfunctional that you're not even going to get together because it would be, a, it would be an all-out war anyway? Christmas is here bringing good cheer. We have to have as believers something far different for us to make much out of Christmas. Now it's time to make our leapfrog a thousand years to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And you're going to find as we begin reading in verse 5, you're going to find the psalm that we just read in Psalm 8 resurfaces. But watch what the writer does. Now, the early part of Hebrews here, uh, actually a lot of, most of Hebrews is all about the argument of the writer that Jesus is better than anyone else. He's going to talk early, Hebrews, Jesus is better than the angels. And that was important because you had some problems in both in Judaism and the early church with some folks worshiping angels, Colossians 2.18. Jesus is better than the angels, then it's Jesus is better than Moses, and then it's Jesus is better than any earthly high priest. And so you're going to hear angels surface here, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Sound familiar? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Wait a minute. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. What we just read in Psalm 8 says you made him a little lower than the angels. What's going on? You have crowned him with glory and honor. That's familiar. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's familiar. God put everything under human beings feet now in putting everything in subjection to him meaning humanity at least from psalm 8 he left nothing outside his control at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him but we see him who for a little while there's that phrase again who for a little while was made lower than the angels ah namely say it with me Jesus. New Testament writers do this all the time. They take Old Testament quotes and they tweak them for their purposes. By the way, did you know that 10% of your New Testament is Old Testament quotes? Some scholars have said that if you take the, if you take the allusions that the New Testament writers made to Old Testaments, indirect or direct allusions, as well as the quotes of the Old Testament, that almost the entire New Testament is Old Testament. That makes sense because the early church had no New Testament. The earliest New Testament book was written about 20 years after Jesus died. And the complete New Testament canon wasn't completed until almost 100 AD. The early church had no Bible except the Old Testament. And 15% of the book of Hebrews is Old Testament quotes like this, Psalm 8. 
But the Bible is progressive revelation. God is revealing himself and his plan throughout history, giving you more, giving us more and more information, making things clearer and clearer and clearer. So we get to the New Testament, and the New Testament writers look back at something like Psalm 8 and say, ooh, here is the ultimate meaning of the prophet David when he wrote. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus became that something just like us. He became one of us. And it says, verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that is God the Father, in bringing many sons, that is believers, to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, this is a line that stumps some Christians because it sounds as if Jesus was flawed and God perfected him, his father perfected him through his suffering. But oftentimes the New Testament speaks about perfection as, as a completing work that God needs to do in people, not cleaning up their morals, but getting them to the place that he needs them to be for the purpose he has for them. And so, for example, if you turn to the next book in the Bible, James chapter 1, beginning of verse 2, James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Do you do that? <laughs> Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And whether you're going through some sort of um, financial crisis at this point in your life, whether you have some sort of illness, whether you have some sort of broken relationship, if your marriage is falling apart, how many of us count anything as joy that stinks? And yet he says, do that when you meet trials of various kinds, and now he's going to explain why. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, God has a purpose in your trials, in your sufferings. We love when people teach God has an answer for your sufferings. We're not so sure we love it when people say God wants to do something to you and for you in the midst of your suffering. Steadfastness, this endurance, many translations say, is a big thing that God wants to accomplish in us, and he often does it through suffering. Sometimes we fight him tooth and nail, though, in the midst of that suffering because we don't want the suffering. And because we fight the suffering, we miss the blessing and the te teaching and the training in the midst of it. He goes on and says, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, he's not talking about your moral improvement, but about God's purposes in your life. And by the same token, God was shaping and molding his son Jesus for the assignment that he had was going to, that was going to culminate in a cross and an empty tomb. For he who sanctifies, verse 12, uh, 11, back in Hebrews 2, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. In other words, Jesus and the people that he saves all have one source or father. And that is why he... Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We just stop there. Did you ever think about that Jesus is, was just like you? 
Jesus was just like you. And so on that night when Jesus was born, he came out of his mother's womb just like all of the rest of us do. And in the days ahead, his mother would wipe his nose just like your mother wiped yours. She would change his diapers just like your mother changed yours. He would get colds. He would get infections. There's no reason to think that Jesus didn't get sick, that he didn't suffer the effects of a fallen world like that. There's no reason to think that he didn't have falling out, uh, falling out with his playmates when he was seven, eight, nine years old because we know that there was a falling out with adults once he became of age. Jesus endured everything that you and I did, you and I experienced. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers saying, I will tell you, uh, tell of your name to my brothers, meaning I will tell my, um, my brothers and, and sisters about you, my father, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. These are all Old Testament uh, quotes about the coming Messiah. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. In other words, Jesus has all of us gathered around him and we are his family. And he's like, my father gave you to me. I saved you because my father gave you to me. You're my, you are my brother and sister, but you're also my sons and my daughters. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So just like us, Jesus became almost angelic. Just like us, he has the Father God. Just like us, he has the same flesh and blood. And for 33 years, he sang with us in our choir. He sang the same songs that we sang. He was just like us, except. Except. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You remember the things that we object to God about that we think he's not caring for? Those are the weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When we talk again and again about all the things that Jesus is just like us about, we come to this screeching halt when we get to sin. He was tempted just like we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence, we who have these weaknesses, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Now, almost all of us, despite the cheer of the Christmas season, have things that we need. Some of you are sitting here right now saying, nobody knows the how badly I need X or how badly I need Y, how badly I need Z. 
and I just want God to change it for me. But remember, his goal is different from yours. You might be stuck on change. I just want you to fix this problem, God. And God says, no, 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 I have an interest in developing you. I have an interest in training you. I want you to become so capable of handling whatever comes your way that you won't break. You might bend, but you will not break. And the only way I can do that is to take you in and through weaknesses. And I'm not going to fix it for you because that would be the worst thing that could happen to you. You need to develop the kind of metal, the kind of substance that's going to enable you not only to weather the storms of your life, but to help people around you weather the storms of their lives. We come into this time of the year, and we love the music that makes the holidays cute, but we need the substance of the holidays that makes these days crucial for us who know Christ we need to be able we we want to be able to embrace the challenges and the weaknesses of the things that we're going through because God is has us in his training school for our good and for the good of those around us and the substance is the savior who gave his life for us and who lived his life like us Everything you experience except succumbing to temptation, Jesus experienced. He did get a cold. He did get an infection. He was betrayed by people that he thought cared about him. He was tempted by money. The Bible, when the Bible says he was tempted every way, just as we are, if he wasn't tempted by money, he wasn't tempted by anything. He was tempted by sex. If he wasn't tempted by sex, he wasn't tempted by anything. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He had people that turned their back on him. He had a family that thought he was mentally ill and tried to put him away. And because of all of this, he can help. He is our great high priest and then when the end of this life comes and the glorious next one breaks upon us, it will all be because he took on flesh and he became like you and me. And then because he was like you and me, he could die on a cross and die for you and me. Brothers and sisters, that is the substance of our Christmas. That is the hope of our Christmas. It's not silver bells. It's not burning candles. It's not tinsel and Christmas trees. Those things are fun and enjoyable, but they are not the substance of our Christmas. Our Savior is the substance of our Christmas, and he is the reason that we can sing joy to us and joy to the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our Savior. The one who was with you before time began, the one who was with you when you fashioned this universe, when you picked up dirt and made the first human being, the one that the Bible says made everything that was made, the one who was the pillar of fire in the Sinai desert, the one who was sung about by the angelic choir to the shepherds that night,
Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. We're so grateful that this one descended to earth and became just a little lower than the angels, just like us. Took on flesh, became a man. That human body that we will see when we get to glory a glorified body, but it still bears the scars of the previous body. The gash in the side, the prints in the hands and the feet to remind us on that day in a way that we still can't grasp. I became one of you. I became something just like you. And because I did, I could die for you. Not just a death as an illustration, but a death as a substitute so that you could have a forever hope in me and in my flesh. Amen.